Mrs. Strat, how far is Carrier from closest land? Dimitri asked. About 300 kilometers, she said. That is good. Wait, why? I said. Why is that good? Dimitri pursed his lips. It is good. Time for science! Listeners, Dukes here, coming at you from Cape Hatteras in North Carolina. It is a glorious spring morning here. Actually, it's a little bit hot already, which means it's probably going to be a bit of a scorcher. Birds are singing, and there is a beautiful northern cardinal sitting on my picnic table. You can hear some migratory birds, some wrens, some sparrows. The sounds of spring, and if spring is here, and if we're already having warm mornings, you know what that means. It means that summer is right around the corner. Summer, can you believe it? Summer, that month where you can sit and talk with your friend on your porch in just a t-shirt into the wee hours, where you can go swimming at your local lake without a wetsuit. Summer, where hopefully you'll spend a week or two with your favorite people at the beach or in the mountains, some other favorite place. And if you're like me, you're going to do that with a book. Oh, there's a lady cardinal, gray with red beak. Beautiful. Beautiful. And in honor of the summer and summer reading, uh, we're going to have a couple of summer reading shows, um, digressions on Upper Middle Brow coming up soon. And we want your input. We want to hear your recommendations for summer reading. Now, generally, I don't know, summer reading can be whatever you want it to be. Generally, for me, it's a book that is immersive, easy to lose myself in, more entertaining than difficult. I remember my mom and my aunt would always, whenever they would go to the beach, they'd always talk about having their beach trash you know, have some kind of like romance novel or something like that they're going to read. It doesn't need to be beach trash, but it can be. Recommend us and recommend the listeners a summer read, something you think will enjoy. Best way to do it will be to record a voice memo to your phone and email that to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. Hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. That's the best way. And on that voice memo, say who you are, Say what book you're recommending, give us one or two sentences about it, and why you think it makes good summer reading. If you can't record a voice memo to your phone or that's a little bit complicated, uh, go ahead and send me an email at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com and ask for help, and I will troubleshoot with you. Uh, we'd like to get a handful of recommendations from our listeners uh, to share in one of these upcoming shows. All right, in just a moment, we will return to the first half of Project Hail Mary, already in progress, but I'm going to leave you with a few spring bird sounds. And a dog.
but anyway, I have a, um, a, a refrigerator in the camper that came with it that I've assumed was dysfunctional. And the guy I'm camping next to, who goes by Hawk, um, who is from sort of upstate New York, and one of the things he does is RV repair. He's like, oh, this is a good one. I think we could get this one going. Again, oh, it is awesome. a propane-powered refrigerator. <laughs> uh, let's see. Do you need, does the propane... Does the propane light? Like, do you need a source of heat to make a refrigerator function? Yes. Basically, as I understand it, and this is why I mentioned ammonia, um, in the refrigerant is ammonia, and there's an ammonia uh -huh. tank and ammonia coils, and you light the propane. It's a pretty simple burner. There's a vent out the back and a vent up top. should probably check the vent up top. Yep you know, for ventilation. I have a gas tester too. So if I try this, I'll be checking the propane lines for leaks and things like that. Basically, as far as I can tell, it just heats up the ammonia and pressurizes it. And that sends it under pressure through the coils. And somehow that makes, okay. I don't understand how heating it can make it cold. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, like, this is this is the same realm as like heat pumps and, and and like any kind of air conditioning, which is like it's less about it uh, like it's about temperature gradients as far as I understand. Well, a, a heat pump is basically an air conditioner, and an air conditioner it's a motor that's essentially spinning a pump that puts things <laughs> under pressure, and when you yeah. put gases or certain types of refrigerants under pressure they cool down i think when you put anything under pressure it cools down i think that's how that oh we need like a really quick detour through like bernoulli's principle yeah um our protagonist would certainly know um yes yeah we would not grace uh dr grace would know um yeah it may need a repaired thermocouple. I may need to sort of do it longer. I might just give it a good cleaning and see if it works. Mm -hmm. But it would actually be really amazing to have a, a propane yeah. fridge. I also you're kind of you're kind of doing like you're sort of like living out our our novel at the moment. You're like traveling across the country in a sealed container, yeah. fixing things. Yes, <laughs> like if I had to do this, but going outside would kill me. Um, huh. Actually, Rocky would probably get that thing working in no time. Well, since Hawk is from upstate New York, he's like completely incomprehensible. Right. And so you'll have to like have this long scene about how you begin communicating with each other. And then eventually he can help you like fix your fridge. He says far out a lot. That's like his version of good, good, good. I haven't heard far out in a long time. I would guess that Hawk is maybe the next generation up from us. Yeah, I would put him in his mid sixties to early seventies, somewhere in, nice. in that range too. Yeah, that's that's probably about the uh, the right. Yeah, that's sort of the right time then for uh, for far out. He he does seem you know if take uh, Jeff Bridges the dude and then push him twenty years ahead mm -hmm. in time, and you basically get that guy. Got it. And make him good <laughs> at fixing things. Yeah. That's how are you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm taking a trip to the coast this weekend, which is going to be great. There's a little, like, uh, there's a place that you can stay where you stay in retro trailers, um, which I'm very excited about. Uh, the two trailers that I had a choice of staying in, one was named Bethany and one was named Fireball. <laughs> um, which did you choose? Hmm, I chose <laughs> I chose Fireball. Okay, okay. <laughs> For um, sure. 
Well, today yeah. uh, we are discussing Andy Weir's 2021 novel, uh, Project Hail Mary, which is ostensibly about saving the world and problem solving in space, but really it's about friendship. <laughs> it's really just a love story. <laughs> exactly. It's a love story and there's a lot of ammonia talk. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, do you sure. want to kind of do the present tense recap and I'll kind of chime in with some flashback past tense stuff? Sure. Or at least I'll get us started with the present tense. Yeah. Maybe I'll try to do the first quarter present tense. We'll see if that... I like that. So yeah. essentially a man uh, wakes up and he is trying to make sense of his environment. Uh, this is like in the beginning there was consciousness in a computer. I think the first... Uh, sentence of the book is, what is two plus two, a voice said, or it's something like that. Um, so we learn pretty quickly that this man has been comatose and that there's a computer taking care of his needs. Over a few pages and chapters, he discovers that he's in a sealed capsule. This is all, by the way, being narrated in the present tense. And the effect of the narration is you're in the man's thoughts as he's realizing these things for the first time. He can't remember his name. He's a white guy. He thinks he's North American because he uses imperial units. Um, in a nice bit of lamp shading, he also says it's possible that he's Liberian and then comments to himself, I don't know my name, but I know that Liberians use uh, standard units. Um, and very, very slowly, uh, he becomes more ambulatory. He starts eating. He gets rid of his tubes and he starts finally having some memories of who he is. Um, and you're going to talk about those memories. But I guess what I will say is that over the first quarter or so of the book, he remembers enough or figures out that he's in a spaceship. He's on a mission to save the Earth. It has something to do with this stuff that was discovered by a scientist back on Earth. And I think that will allow me to kick it back to you. Yeah, the nature of all of the flashbacks, at first the flashbacks are kind of motivated by external things that happened to him on the ship. Uh, he sees his dead shipmates. Um, uh, the very first one, he sees a trail of blood, which makes him flashback to um, the, the big problem. Penis of, blood. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> penis blood, yes. Yes, a thin line of penis blood because he tries to escape his robot uh, tormentors that are really just there to take care of him and jerks a catheter out of his urethra by falling to the floor. Every man's um, nightmare. Oh my God. It's, I was like, oh my God. Um, Although, yeah, in a way, probably bad. good to get it over with quickly and not have the anticipation of it. You know, <laughs> yep. When it's over, yeah. it's over. Um, so what we discover, so uh, our hero, Dr. Ryland Grace, um, is presently, or in the past, was a school teacher. In the past, was a school teacher. Before that, he was an academic who was kind of drummed out of academia uh, for proposing the idea that life could evolve without water. Um, and um, he discovers from a friend of his that basically the sun is going to die. Uh, the sun is dimming and it's dimming at a rate that in the next 30 to 40 years, it will dim appreciably enough to force an ice age um, and, you know, mass 
crop failure, famine, war, um, all the bad stuff. Um, and due to a series of, um, due to a series of kind of coincidences about his own background, he gets involved in the project, Project Hail Mary, uh, to save the earth. Um, the problem is that a, uh, organism, um, is infecting stars in the local cluster near our solar system. Um, and if a star is about eight light years away, that's far enough for this organism, which he coins the term astrophage for sun eating. Um, it will get there and start feeding on that particular star and basically destroy the solar system that that sun warms and i will kick it back over to you for him for the stuff that happens while he is on the ship in the first half of the book cool um yeah and maybe to add to that too a lot of the flashbacks involve his interactions with other characters who are sort of mostly minor characters although i would say one is a classic captain happen strat is that her name yeah, uh, yeah. Strat. eva strat eva strat which means uh, which is just eva street yeah. um in 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 um flemish well Dutch. maybe a street is the fastest way to get to where you need to go uh, Hail Mary, full of grace. Um, the, some of the names are allegorical. I'm not sure about the the other ones. So, so in the capsule, in the time period that we experience, he has a moment where basically the ship starts decelerating and slowing down. I have to remind myself of what happens. When it slows down, he enters into the solar system they're going to. I believe that's Tau Ceti. Um, and because there's something about Tau Ceti that seems interesting to the scientists on Earth, I think specifically the astrophage is not diminishing the star as efficiently as it is with other stars or something. So they want to try to figure out what's going on there. And to make a long story short, when he gets there, he finds another alien spaceship. And we meet Rocky, who is kind of like a spider with five legs, about as big as a Doberman, with kind of rock. His atmosphere is extremely hot and ammonia. Rocky is the only survivor of his spaceship, and he is not really a scientist. He's an engineer. Um, he's really good at fixing things. And rather quickly, Grace and Rocky start learning each other's language, strike up a friendship, and make a plan to work together to try to figure out what is going on in both of the, in this star system, in Tau Ceti. Uh, Rocky manages to kind of dock his ship to the Hail Mary. Um, they start interacting. They develop an interesting form of communication since uh, Rocky has two mouths and speaks in sort of chords. Uh, Grace has to sort of, he, he programs a computer to figure this out. And I think in our section, the kind of last major plot point is that Grace remembers that, oh, in fact, this is a suicide mission. Ironically, the fuel is the thing that's threatening civilization, astrophage, which is an incredibly powerful uh, battery. Uh, it stores tremendous amounts of energy. There's not enough astrophage for them to get, uh, for the ship to get back to Earth. So the plan is for him to die there. 
And Rocky says, oh, wait, I've got plenty of astrophage. And Grace is happy because now it seems like he might be able to get back to Earth if he succeeds in figuring out why the astrophage is not destroying Tau Ceti. And that's, I believe, more or less the end of the section we read. Yeah. Let's get into questions. So, I mean, my question is what makes Andy Weir different, but more specifically... Lots of people, this is what we call hard sci-fi. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is very much science-based. Now, I'm not a scientist, and maybe scientists would have a bone to pick with some of the science. I don't know. It stands up based on my, like, college-level physics classes that I took and astronomy classes. It seems to stand up. Um, and I've heard that Andy Weir is, is generally regarded by scientists so he's doing hard sci-fi. A lot of people do hard sci-fi and they get swallowed up by the science. They're fascinated with the science. The science has interesting concepts and maybe the science suggests an interesting premise for a story. But a lot of writers just, they become too absorbed by the science and the story suffers. Other sci-fi writers either hand wave the science away basically they don't really get it john scalzi's a classic example of this where he's always like oh they have something called a spin drive we don't have any idea how the, it works it just it just works um some sci-fi yeah, writers the, do um, that that's the the it's the james s.a Corey approach to the expanse sure like yes we've got drives that do the thing that we've always wanted to do it just happens. And it doesn't matter because we're not telling a story that necessarily stems from the science. You know, in the I don't I don't know the Expanse books, but say like in a Scalzi novel, the scenario, it's the it's sort of the global the 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 galactic political scenario that is interesting, mm-hmm. you know, or it's something else about what's going on that's interesting. Um, you know, Ursula Le Guin, one of my favorite sci-fi writers, is anthropological. She doesn't really explain the science either, although there is some scientific grounding because her ships don't go faster than light speed and relativity is a factor, but she doesn't explain how they work. She doesn't explain how instantaneous communication works because she's really interested in the kind of anthropological encounters with the aliens. You know, that's that's all. The ships are just there to get humans interacting with aliens so interesting cross-cultural things can happen. But Andy Weir is able to use the science to drive the narrative. And he's able to make the science enhance the narrative and the narrative to enhance the fascination of the science in a way that I feel like... I don't know anyone else who does it that well. And I'm just like, how does he do that? <laughs> what makes him, what allows, so many writers try to do that and he is so good at it. And and what is it that makes him so good at it? That is, so that I think that's the, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many millions of dollars he has made from his writing of the Martian and project Hail Mary, but, but that, that number of dollars is it's that million dollar question. If that number Um, is N, then that is the N million dollar question. (laughs) Exactly. As, as, as Ryland might write it on a chalkboard. You know, I, I, yeah, this has been my, you know, I kind of sent you a little joke about a title for one of these that, uh, the, the, one of our titles could be project Hail Mary maths position. Um, and I mean that really like just glowingly because I am so impressed by his ability to take 
hard concepts and transform them into um, narrative. Larry Niven was pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of those writers of the like seventies, like silver era of uh, of, yeah. of like big hard sci-fi, um, Frederick Pohl, yeah. Robert Heinlein. I was going to say Frederick Pohl too. Like, yeah, like Gateway is yeah. another. And this has got a kind of a gateway feel to it too. If you ever read that book. Um, but I, I would guess that this, I, I don't know anything about his process. I would love to know more. Writing like this, where there are difficult concepts that get conveyed in such a way that it's like drinking water, takes like so much drafting. Yeah. Um, that it just takes a lot of time and a lot of like, okay, what's the, the most important piece of information here? How can I actually convey it in a way that is um, effective? I mean, he, he spent his previous life as a software engineer. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I know enough engineers to know that a, a real frustration of engineers is basically interfacing with management. Yeah. Um, I would hazard a guess that maybe Andy Weir was the engineer who had who was like selected by his group of peers to like go and talk to management. Yeah. Because um, I get the sense that he he probably is really good at conveying difficult, heavy topics um, in a really clear and straightforward manner. Well, and as you're saying that, I would agree with that. And I, I think, too, engineers, science minded people get excited about science because because they understand the science. This is a, a hypothesis. Because there is an emotional stake to the science. It has stakes that the rest of us could relate to. But often the engineers, those stakes are so intuitive that they're not consciously aware of them. And I think Andy Weir can see the connection. But what's your what's your reading that illustrates the concept? This is the section when he is on the Chinese aircraft character carrier uh side note uh his um his handler eva strott um has kind of assembled a crack team of worldwide scientists aboard a chinese aircraft carrier um to do a lot of experiments on astrophage in order to get project hail mary going yep. um and they've discovered that probably astrophage could be used to power a spaceship of some time, some kind. The plan is to send that spaceship to this other solar system to figure out why it's not dying. Um, and uh, they have given the job to a team of Russian engineers, and they are about to test the spin drive for the first time. Mrs. Strat, how far is carrier from closest land? Dmitri asked. About 300 kilometers, she said. That is good. Wait, why? I said, why is that good? Dimitri pursed his lips. It is good. Time for science. <laughs> he pushed a button. There was a muffled whoomp from the far side of the bay, followed by a hum, and then nothing. Experiment done! He leaned forward to read the screen. 60,000 newtons of force! He turned to the other Russians. 60,000 newtonai! They all cheered. Strat was Strat turned to me. That's a lot, right? I was too busy staring slack-jawed at Dimitri to answer her. Did you say 60,000 Newtons? He pumped his fist into the air. Yes, 60,000 Newtons maintained for 100 microseconds. Oh my God, from that little thing? 
I started to walk forward. I had to see this for myself. Dimitri grabbed my arm. No, no, you stay here, friend. We all stay here. 1.8 billion joules of light energy was released. This is why we needed vacuum chamber and 1,000 kilograms of silicon. No air to ionize. Light goes directly to silicon block. Energy is absorbed by melting the metal, see? He turned the laptop toward me. A camera feed from inside the vacuum chamber showed the glowing blob that was once a thick plate of metal. Whoa, I said. Yes, yes, Dimitri said. That Mr. Einstein with his E equals MC squared. Very powerful stuff. We will let the cooling system work on it for a few hours. Use the seawater. We'll be fine. I just shook my head in awe. In just 100 microseconds, that's one ten-thousandth of a second, Dimitri's spin drive melted a metric ton of metal. All that energy had been stored up in my little astrophages, slowly harvested from the carrier's nuclear reactor heat over time by my breeder. I mean, the math all checked out, but to see it actually demonstrated like that was another thing entirely. Wait, how much astrophage did you use there? Dimitri smiled. I can only estimate based on thrust generated, but was close to 20 micrograms. I gave you two entire grams. Can I have the rest of it back, please? Don't be greedy, Strat said. Dimitri needs it for further experimentation. She turned to him. Good work. I stared at Dimitri. If you set off all two grams of that sample at once, he shrugged. Foosh! We're all vapor. All of us. Carrier two. Explosion would make small tsunami. But 300 kilometers away from land, so it's okay. He slapped me on the back. And I would owe you drink and afterlife, yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, what makes that work? Yeah, that is such a good question. Um, you know, he gets a lot of mileage from his asides. Yeah. Um, in just 100 microseconds, that's one ten thousandth of a second, um, he's constantly giving... He, he does what a good teacher does. Like, he keeps things interesting, but adds enough contextualization along the way, but not too much for it to turn into a technical treatise. Um, and I really think that's why, that's why Ryland Grace works as a narrator because he's a teacher. Um, and, and Andy Weir has done a really masterful job of kind of suiting his action and his characters to, to ways that work together. So like, okay, like I need a narrator who spins out difficult concepts in a understandable way. Great. Make him a science teacher. Like that person is going to be able to do that. And the fact that Andy Weir can kind of chameleon into that voice and that understanding is pretty remarkable. So as you're saying that too, one thing that occurs to me is um, he's giving us a lot of he's he's giving us a scale for these things that we can wrap our heads around. We can imagine a Chinese aircraft carrier 300 kilometers from any landmass, and then we can imagine a vacuum chamber inside of that with a, a thick plate, and then we could be like, all right, two ounces. Well, two ounces, I know what two ounces is. That's like, you know, like a quarter of a glass of water. Uh, so it's it's... That would be enough to, like, vaporize the entire aircraft carrier, but a tenth of that, or 2% of that, is enough to melt, you know, some solid 
steal. And so you actually, you know, I think part of it is he's also doing what a good math teacher does, which is he's giving us, he's merging scene in a, with science in a way that gives us scale. So we can kind of follow along that scientific reaction. I'm going to, another thing I think I wanted to add, and I might cut another one of my questions is, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been listening to some of our recent episodes that come out. We've thrown around the terms, um, lamp shading and hand waving, um, a little bit. And my contention would be he does almost no hand waving and mm-hmm. he does the classy version of lampshading. Um, and I'll tell you what, I, I, and I'm, I, I'll, I wonder if we use those terms exactly the same. I'm not sure if we use them exactly the same way. I think, I think it's similarly. But my understanding of hand-waving is there's an implausibility of some sort in the story. Writer's aware of it. The writer doesn't want it to bag the story. So hand-waving is like, don't look at that. Look over here. Yeah. yeah. Here's something yeah, else. Just just don't worry about it. Yeah. Just don't, don't look over, stop asking questions. And it's also, it's sort of like, let's not even, let's not address it. Let's just move on to something more exciting and hope that you didn't notice it happening. And there's, there's some famous examples of that in movies where it's like, I think they also talk about the refrigerator um, moment where you're kind of like opening the fridge, you've got home and you're like, wait a minute. How did the like thing get in the place where the thing was that allowed the deus to, you know? Um, and then my understanding of lampshading is that it's it's basically the opposite tact, where there is something implausible that's happening. It could be a character behaving in a weird way. It could be something supernatural. It could be something that doesn't. Strat, her powers might be an example mm-hmm. of something like that. Lampshading is drawing attention to it and basically saying. Reader, don't worry. I know about this, and it's okay. And I, I think the classy version of it is where basically the you have characters who are either offer an explanation for it, or B, you can tell it's implausible in their world too, and they're reacting appropriately to something implausible. Um, you know, so people reacting to Strat's sort of godlike administrative powers and being like, "What well, she can do that to me is kind of an example of lampshading because it's like, this is kind of ridiculous. And he's saying, well, yeah, it is ridiculous. And that's, and people are behaving as though it's ridiculous. The, the less classy version of it is where the, the, the author sort of Jimmy Fallon, like in Saturday Night Live, just kind of like smiles at the camera and mugs a little bit, you know, just kind of is like, eh, you got, you know, right. you know sort of winks at the audience well because because i think in that in that strategy what you're saying to the audience is this is all a joke yeah and so that can work in certain circumstances where it is maybe comic or the project that you're after like the thing you're trying to do is draw attention to implausibilities for some for some other comic reason or something like that it's fine in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy Totally. Or satire, right. which is a perfect example. Like like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a satirical novel. Right. And so you do want to draw attention to the absurdity of, you know, of whatever situation the, the babble is going fish. on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about the babble fish in 30 years. Well, and you remember, and now, do you remember how it's lampshaded away, too? 
I don't. Don't you put the babble fish in your ear? You put it. Isn't that how it works? You put it in your ear, and then you can understand any language. And then there's this aside where the narrator explains that this was uh, cited as a proof for the non-existence of God, and the argument went like this: God says, "I refuse to prove I exist because proof denies faith, and without faith, I am nothing." And then someone else says, ah, but the babblefish is a dead giveaway because only God could create something like that. So therefore, you've proved your exists, which means according to your own logic, you don't exist. Poof, you're gone. <laughs> and God disappears in a poof of uh, logic. In a poof of Douglas Adams magic. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I think, what about my construction yeah, then, of like the classy version? I mean, is that how you understand it too, where it's the characters sort of reacting to the apparent implausibility? Totally. What you're, what you're talking about is like, there is an implausibility in the world, but you make it less implausible in that world. Right. Like in our world, it is like, who knows? Maybe if there was an existential threat, um, there would be this kind of like coming together and like putting one person in charge of essentially like the world's governments and their scientific resources. And then, you know, and the way that this is achieved, you had this question about the courtroom scene um, where Eva Strat is kind of like hauled in front of a tribunal where she basically uses that tribunal to be like, no more of this. Um, and because uh, I don't want to repeat this again. I think he does a really good job of that in this book of getting us to see that, sure, there are implausibilities, um, but there are implausibilities that are consistent with this world that he has made. Um, I dug around a bunch on, you know, in prepping for this. And of course, there are like a chorus of like, Andy Weir's novel is a hard science novel and it mostly gets a lot of things right. But, you know, Iridian 40 would actually be like the actual like atmosphere. You know, it's not, you know, it's it's 29 times the you know, pressure that's inside the Project Hail Mary, which is only 40 like pectorpascals. So it's actually 9.65 atmospheres and you can still see light. And you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, shut up. Like, there is enough science here and enough like narrative craft that makes this book really work that's kind of why like my next question about like is this the perfect book for our time mm. <laughs> um, because it combines all of these concepts of like a giant existential threat read yeah. climate change yeah. <laughs> um, and um, but then also combines it with a real call for humanity and communication um, and does it all in a manner that any video gamer will recognize. Mm. Like that is essentially the narrative structure of this of this book is it's just like a video game. There are there are hurdles that are that keep getting bigger. Mm. And the way this whole book slash game works is first he has to like, figure out where he is ah. it's a classic for and if you think back to a lot of the like puzzle video games of the 1990s um or disco elysium which has a lot of similarities to this game you are a cop you're an alcoholic cop who wakes up not knowing the job that you're on but you still have to solve the mystery mm. Um, and amnesia is a really strong through line in a lot of like crime and mystery novels, mm. because of course that makes perfect sense for a mystery novel. Like what's more compelling 
than like trying to figure out a mystery where, you know, the person who's trying to figure it out also doesn't have any memory. Uh, Memento is a great example of that. Yeah. You know, like. Well, and the other thing that amnesia is doing is one senses he's remembering it more or less conveniently for us as the reader chronologically, which is helpful. But he is also the emotional quality of the memories become they raise the stakes. So Mm -hmm. at first he doesn't know where he is. Then maybe he thinks he's in quarantine. Then he figures out he's on a mission. Then he figures out, oh, he's responsible for saving humanity from disaster. That's a lot of responsibility. Then he figures out it's a suicide mission. And, you know, I, I've i read this book before, and I think you have as well. And so we know in the second mm-hmm. half of the book, there's something else he learns about his, I'm going to say, choice to participate in the mission that raises the stakes even there's a progressive level of challenge and there's also a progressive level of emotional stakes which is also the classic you know action adventure story plot right you know a successive series of quests each one is harder than the last one uh the hero gains skills from the last one and needs them for the next one and the stakes ratchet up uh, uh, for each one, too. I mean, you know, I recently rewatched The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, and it, it exactly follows that pattern. That's the only the, the only example I can put in my brain right now. Well, I think, I mean, you know, you're right to bring up any, any you know, classic hero's journey like that. Um, it's, the, it's a structure that we're so familiar with, and I think what's remarkable about this book is that it manages to be really successful emotionally available, well, well written, it's limpid, um, it's funny. Uh, and it, and it was a huge hit. It was also very popular. Yeah. Um, it really does. Um, it's really, it's really an astonishing piece of work. I think it probably, I think one of my questions here is like, okay, if we're, we, we know it's definitely the very like popular and successful part of upper middle brow. Um, I would make a case that the upper parts of it is that you, it doesn't call its craftiness, like it doesn't call attention to its own craftiness. Right. Like it isn't lyrical. It isn't right. beautiful. Right. Um, it is, the prose is simple. Um, it is, but I, I think talking about all of the things that we're talking about, the craft is kind of assembling all of these, you know, like you just said, emotional stakes raising, using the amnesia, skill stake raising, shuttling back and forth from present time and past time, figuring out how to communicate with an alien, um, all done in a way that is really pleasurable. Um, and I think it's a perfect book for our time because it's accessible um, and emotionally affecting at the same time, mm. and high craft. I, well, so what I could say is that, you know, I devoured it the first time I read it, roughly when it came out. Um, I think it was included with my Audible subscription. Like, I think it was a freebie. Um, I could be mistaken about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time I was trying very hard. As you know, I am working from the road in Florida and I found a renter to rent my apartment 
um, for four months, but I had to get all of my furniture out and I had to get all my stuff packed and I had somewhere I needed to be and I had to be out of the house. And I managed to do that and get on the road the very last minute, basically Tuesday the 31st, because I had to be on the road and out of the house on the 1st and had to be in Ohio. And that night I drove into the night and I was so frazzled and so keyed up and over-caffeinated and physically exhausting from packing and not getting enough sleep that I didn't want to read the book because our taping was a few days away still. And I didn't want to forget the book, but I, I read it just because that was the most comforting thing I could do to take me out of the stressful moment that I was in. Um, so in that sense... And also in the sense of kind of like wish fulfillment, in the sense that this book fulfills a hopeful fantasy about the kind of world we would live in, which is that humanity, that Russia, China, and the United States would get their act together and and cooperate in, a, in the spirit of friendship and in the spirit of efficiency without letting petty politics get in the way. You know, the Russians do their part, the Americans do their part, the Chinese offer a carrier, the three people on the mission, one's Chinese, one's Russian, one's American, um, that that would happen in the face of a existential crisis, I think is a deep and profound hope for this moment. And so I think it plays into that in that sense, too. That said, when you use the word perfect book, that it makes me I want I think I want this to be an ongoing question because I it raises the question for me, what is the perfect book for a moment? Is the perfect book oh, yeah. for a moment a book that di- centuries later we read to understand that moment? Is the perfect book for a moment a book, a piece of art that inspires people of different backgrounds with different beliefs and different political ideologies towards a higher ideal, towards some kind of cooperation. Is that a perfect book or is a perfect book just something that fulfills that kind of wish fulfillment fantasy around the kind of world that we want to live in in a particular moment? And I'm not sure I'm ready to answer that question. Yeah, I think that... I think that this book could be a lot of things to a lot of people. And the reason why I'm so drawn to it and like hopeful about it is that I do think a a large group of people could find a lot of worth in it for different reasons. Just like you said, maybe this is a book about like hopeful international cooperation in the face of an existential crisis. Maybe it's a book about friendship in space (laughs) and like the ability to communicate with somebody that you meet and don't share the language, but find a way to a really deep and lasting friendship. Right. Um, And I think it's the, the reason that I use that very hyperbolic term is I think that he has managed to, Take what is a pretty normal, tropey plot, like save yep. the solar system. Yep. Um, and through his combination of like skills and backgrounds and his own craft and his own writing, 
is is make something that could be worthwhile to a lot of people, um, which it, you know is, is certainly never going to be perfection. But in these days of sort of like, you know, anime and uh, polarization and division and people not getting along, it's pretty darn good. Yeah. And when you use the word perfect, or I agree, it's the way that the book is put together that makes it superior. Uh-huh. It's not the lyrical prose. That said, there is something lyrical, maybe not lyrical, but there is something the first person narration, it's you get to know Ryland Grace very well, and his voice feels very real, very alive, and what he's experiencing at a given moment. His his emotional experiences of any particular moment feel very they're not they're not it's not profound emotional metaphor like some writers do well it's what you do well um and other writers do well it's more just kind of it's dialogic it's a man talking to himself um sort of the way i talk to myself you know when i'm out on the road i mean i don't actually my lips aren't necessarily flapping but i'm thinking this kind of dialogue to myself and i think it is almost perfectly constructed the reason i have a question about a courtroom the courtroom scene I believe that's the only scene in the first half of the book that breaks from the convention of either Ryland Grace's first-person narration or Ryland Grace's flashback, where he's remembering something and he's present. I don't think Ryland was at the courtroom. And I think it's the only time where we have a moment where it's just like a third-person omniscient narrator. And I did... I did notice that, and I'm wondering if you noticed it too, and if it bothered you at all. I don't think I noticed that it shifted into into third person, um, or if that that Grace wasn't present. I need to go and I might be wrong about find that. It. I might be wrong. Um, Maybe he was in the corner watching all of that. That um, would be so strange if he was, though. You know, like that would be I think that would actually be like more implausible and would be more alarming. Yeah. As like because you're like, well, why the hell would she take him? It is. I mean, to me, it does stick out when you develop a narrative convention and break from it and only break from it one time. It does. It is sort of like a field of. You know, it's like a, 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 a bloody dead deer on a snowy mountain pass, you know, <laughs> it draws the yeah, eye. I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now. There's no clue that Ryland is doing the narration. Yeah. It still exists. It feels like his voice. It still feels like Ryland's voice. Um, but it is almost all dialogue. Um but you're right. And maybe part of the reason why I didn't notice is because it's so um, it's so tonally consistent with the rest of the book. Um, but, yeah, now that you're pointing it out, you're like, what the heck? This is a step out of his narration into uh, into something else. And it is odd. Yeah. Very odd. Do you, and do you is your I mean you sort of alluded to this earlier, but would you do you see that scene's function as a kind of lampshading, as a kind of explanation of Strat's, a kind of acknowledgement of the audience's potential incredulity of Ava Strat's powers? 
I, you know, like, I don't know if it is necessary. Like, like we've sort of, I think all that we, I think the scene that really conveys that is when we end up in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with Grace alongside and basically, uh, with, with, uh, Eva Strat, um, press ganging Dr. Locken into the service of Project Hail Mary and Grace like looking at this other scientist who up until the middle of the scene was kind of his adversary and Grace just being like, you'll get used to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and I, I really do think that, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't really see I, what this is here for. I think I agree. I think I've come to your conclusion, which is that it's not necessary and it is, you know, it's, it's almost like Ava Strahd is kind of flexing her power and it's kind of like maybe Andy Weir's flexing a little bit too. You know, he's just like, I'm tired of, you know, <laughs> do you know, like, just like I can do this. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm reading, I'm reading a book right now called trust exercise, which is absolutely unbelievably good. Um, and it's really, it's really messing with my head. Um, and a friend of mine, um, suggested I read it after reading the first chapter of the the novel that I'm working on. And I stayed away from it for about a year because I was like, Oh, I don't want it to like, it's it, cause it's about actors. Mm. Um, there is a section in the middle of the book where it changes f- perspective sometimes within sentences. Oh. And it works somehow. Hmm. And it does feel a little bit like a flex, but it also feels like it fits perfectly with the the mood and the tone of the book and what it's trying to do. Um, and it's not distracting. And I don't know how in the world Susan Choi pulls it off. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, like, I just sort of wandered through this courtroom scene and was like, oh, cool. Like, it's fine. Um, you know, I, I kind of enjoy Eva Strat like sort of flexing her sure. international powers. But yeah, you're right. I think it probably could have gone. It seems like he needed maybe it's here for a piece of pacing because we go from him realizing that Rocky, the alien, um, is a scientist as like Rocky is like hurting himself with a melting tape measure. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, very funny scene. Um, and then we, we jump to, you know, we, there's a time skip and Grace is like eating a peanut butter tortilla yeah. and like and figuring out how to communicate with Rocky. So maybe he needed something there for yeah. a piece of pacing. Um, yeah, it's it's a that's a really good observation of yours. It is a almost perfectly pieced together puzzle of of plot mm-hmm. and unfolding and that is no easy feat and so you would expect there to be some you know cracks here and there but and that's the only one i found like that where mm-hmm. i was like yeah this is maybe this one small flaw um you know we've talked a lot about what's plausible and what's implausible mm-hmm. um and uh, i kind of want to hazard a guess um about this book's nature um, so there's a lot of coincidences that are necessary to make this story and any story function. Um, you know, like Grace has to be a disgraced former academic 
with this particular skill set who has shifted to being a school teacher at the precise moment of this crisis, who also has the genetic ability to be one of a million people on the planet to be able to be sent on this mission. And he is the one out of three people who survives the trip. You know, at, at what point are you kind of like, okay, that's, that's too many coincidences, but then do you actually care about that? Well, Okay, so some of those coincidences are coincidences for Ryland Grace, but if you look at it from, say, Andy Weir or Ava Stratt's perspective, they're, they are, it's, it's not improbable that in the world of six and a half or seven billion people, you would find a physicist slash math teacher with coma resistance I think, like, we can understand that very, very few people would be suited to go on this particular mission, and he just happens to be, as it turns out, one of the three people in the world who statistically exist um, in the same way that there must be somebody in the world who has left, who is left-handed, has three gold teeth, is missing one toe on their left foot, two toes on their right foot and is redheaded. Like, there, do you know what I mean? Like, there must be somebody like that in the world. Um, we're going to choose to tell that person's story because that's the person who goes on the mission. So in that sense, I, I it doesn't bother me that much. The, the one of, the, of all of those coincidences, the one that bothers me the most is when he tests and proves to have the coma resistance. But I think... Yeah. Um, I think we kind of get away with it because when that happens, you're you're kind of distracted from understanding its relevance. You know, Grace has him tested simply as a, a form of protocol, right? And so the stakes of that test are very low. So when it turns out that he is resistant and he finds out about it later, this is a necessary plot function, you know, to get him on the ship. You get a he gets away with it. If it turned out that the three other astronauts, and then they had to test him, and it was a one in twenty thousand chance or whatever, or one in seven thousand, and he just happened, that would bother me a lot more. There's something about mm -hmm. putting the coincidence before the stakes that makes that work somehow. And I don't know why. I do think one of the themes of the book is that both. Grace and Rocky feel as though they're the wrong person for the job. And I think that this the theme here is actually a universal theme, which is sometimes you feel like you're the wrong person for the job, and it turns out you're just the right person for the job. And that is kind of one of those hero's journey tropes. You know, uh, I was listening to a recap of the the book, the never-ending story, not the movie, but the book. And that is kind of the theme of that book, too. Uh, the, the boy in that book, Bastion, doesn't think he's made of heroic stuff. Um, but he and, certainly is, yeah. And it turns out that he is, too. And so I think that, you know, you could apply that to a different set of skills. This happens to be, you know, if it had been the Russian woman and a different 
five-legged alien. Maybe they would have found a way to save the world, too, with their combined skill set. Maybe the alien would have been the really good scientist and she would have been the one who was good at fixing things. You know, you know what I mean? It, you, know, you know, Grace, it, and we don't know at this point in the, the book whether Grace and Rocky are going to solve the dilemma and save the day. So that's how I feel. Totally. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a certain point where I think like, like you said, we're, we're kind of operating outside of normal narrative here. Like we're, we're in more like myth territory, mm. it feels like yeah. to me, than we are, you know, like, yeah. and in myth, it, it's always the right person for the job. You know, it's like, um, you know, um, like uh, Perseus is perfectly suited to the things that he needs to do to be Perseus. Cause you're not going to tell um, the story of the 17 other people who like went into the <laughs> labyrinth and got eaten yeah. by the Minotaur or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's this a endless bummer. story of like people that get turned to stone by the, by the Medusa. By the Medusa. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are like chunks of the Iliad where you're like, Oh my God, more dead people and their lineages. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a different or different, different world there. But yeah, like, I think what's so, I think one of the things that I'm so impressed by about this book is that it does feel like a piece of contemporary myth-making, um, in the same way that like the great Gatsby becomes a piece of like American myth-making, um, you know, like, and, and we could talk about a lot of like real classics of literature that do the same thing that sort of eventually rise to the level of myth. Star Wars. Sure. I mean, yeah, episode absolutely. four is is a piece of contemporary myth making that's important to a lot of people and provides the same role that myth is supposed to do, which is to sort of elevate human existence from the pedestrian and the mundane. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it attempts and it, it'll be interesting to see because sometimes there are stories that are perfectly great. You really enjoy them when you read them or you watch them. And then they don't, they don't stay with you. And you don't, you're not like, oh man, I'm going to read Project Hail Mary every five years. Mm-hmm. Other times they stay with you and I don't know which it's going to be. And I feel like it's often hard to know that. I mean, as kids, we watched Star Wars and it was a huge deal to us. Mm-hmm. I think many movie critics saw it as a groundbreaking breakthrough in special effects, but not something that was going to impact storytelling in cinema Mm -hmm. forever. And I think it's hard to know that. I think it's really, really hard to know that. And every now and again, you'll go back and read a review of something and you'll be like, wow, that critic nailed it. Like I I read Roger, Roger Ebert, by the way, gave a very positive review of Star Wars. He also, he reviewed Karate Kid and he, he was like, this is a great movie. The, the charisma between Ralph Macchio and, you know, Pat Morita is really palpable uh, it's a great story. It's very well told. It's well shot. And, you know, here we are now and like coming up on the fifth season or fourth season of Cobra Kai. And like that story got in our generation's DNA such that like they're still telling it, basically. Um, I think it's hard to predict, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think this story has the pieces of it. It'll be interesting to see what the movie does, if the movie kind of hits in the same way. 
you've got a reading about first contact, um, which I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing. Yeah. And I think actually this reading kind of summarizes everything or it, it, it speaks to everything we've talked about up to this point too. So I'll just get into it. Um, so this is a moment where Grace has been, he's arrived at Talcetti. He's looking at the Petrova line and then something blocks his view of it. And he figures, he thinks there's something wrong with his sensor equipment or something like that. And so he starts playing around and basically says, oh, you know what? He's been looking on infrared. He'll just switch to visual because maybe there's like some space junk out there or some dust on the receiver or something. So, and uh, so here's the reading based on that. I press the toggle button and that's when I see it. There is an object blocking my view of the Petrova line. It's right next to my ship, maybe a hundred meters away. It's roughly triangle shape and it has gable-like protrusions along its hull. Yes, I said hole. It's not an asteroid. The lines are too smooth, too straight. This object was made, fabricated, constructed. Shapes like that don't occur in nature. It's a ship. Another ship. There's another ship in the system with me. It's nothing like any spacecraft I've ever seen. The whole thing is made of huge, flat surfaces. The worst possible way to make a pressure vessel. No one in their right mind would make a ship that way. No one on Earth, anyway. I blink a few times at what I'm seeing. I gulp. This... This is an alien spacecraft made by aliens. Aliens intelligent enough to make a spacecraft. Humanity isn't alone in the universe. And I've just met our neighbors. Holy fucking shit. End of chapter. And we should say... Grace, Ryland Grace does not swear. Uh, this has been established. Maybe it's because he's a math teacher. Or he'll say golly. Uh, there's a moment where he describes the catheter hurting like a mother fluffer. Uh, so <laughs> up to this point. There's a very funny moment early on when he says like, where he says like, like fudge. And then he's like, am I deeply religious? Do I yeah. have like small kids? What, what? <laughs> Yeah, what's going on here? Yeah, because he's habitually yeah. swearing, but he doesn't remember who he is. What what about that? What about that passage speaks to you? One of the things that speaks to me, and I wish I had mentioned before I read it that he doesn't swear, because it's a simple trick, which is if you have a character who never swears, and then you have him swear one time in the book, uh, that yeah. drives home the emotions of, of that particular moment, you know, in a big way. It's a simple trick, but it works. But I also think, I mean, first of all, this is modern mythology, right? This is we're not alone in the universe. I just met her neighbors. It's everything mm -hmm. you were saying before. But also, it, we're coming right out of, I was looking at the Petrova line. The the frequency of the Petrova line is da 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 da, -da hertz, but I wasn't able to see it. What's going on here? There's something in, there's something else. And he's, he's problem solving. He's sciencing a problem. And very quickly, in the span of two paragraphs, we get from science to 
we are not alone in the universe and I've just met our neighbors. Like the end, it emerges seamlessly. Like, and we've established that this is how Grace's brain works. He processes mm -hmm. the world through science. So he's looking outside. Yeah. He can't see the thing he was looking at. So basically he switches from infrared to visual and there's a big triangular metal thing looming over his ship. And we have him in the span of about 30 seconds realizing the significance of what's happening and responding emotionally to it. And, you know, it's like you say that it's not lyrical. I agree. I do think, though, he's employing a poetic quality of repetition um, in it. He's doing the brain making sense of information. But I think, you know, a good poet will do this, too. You know, like no one on. No one in their right mind would make a ship that way. No one on Earth would, anyway. I blink a few times at what I'm seeing. I gulp. This? This is an alien spacecraft. Made by aliens. Aliens intelligent enough to make a spacecraft. Those three sentences are extremely redundant, right? Yeah. And, but I, I think that is a kind of poetic uh, dialogic repetition of, of yep. in those three sentences because the gravity of what he is realizing is too big for one sentence. And totally. his brain needs three sentences to catch up to the gravity of what it's sensing. And so I just think that's masterful. And it, like, it, there's something, there are moments in this book that kind of make me tear up. And this was one of them. There's a number of moments of his interactions with Rocky, too. Because, oh. as you say, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a bromance. Um, yeah. And, and in the, in the best possible way. Let's uh, move on to some trivia. All right. Um, host goes why don't, first. Um, host goes first. Okay. So um, when Andy Weir was not writing The Martian in 1999, uh, he was still a software engineer at AOL. Um, AOL got absorbed by Netscape. Um, and in an interview, uh, he makes this very funny aside where he says, oh, my God, listen to me, AOL, Netscape. And he makes a reference to the dance craze of that particular moment. Um, and he is making this reference to be like, oh, my God, I'm so old. Um, was the dance in question A, the sprinkler, B, the electric slide, C, the Macarena? Ooh. Okay, so... Basically, he's talking to some people and he refers to AOL and Netscape. He gets sort of embarrassed about how old he is and then makes an allusion to a dance as sort of like me talking about Netscape or AOL. My talking about those things is like me talking about and dance. Exactly. Blank dance. Yes. Uh, um, and I gave, I, I gave you the I don't know if I gave you the date. I will. It's 1999. The date of the dance or the date that he has this interaction? The date, the date, the date that he's talking about. So this, this particular time in his history that he's referencing when he was, when AOL, when he worked at AOL, it gets absorbed by Netscape and the dance craze of that particular moment was one of those three options. Oh. And your job is to tell me which of those dance crazes was ascendant 
1999. Okay. You made it, I think, a little bit easier, I think, um, because uh, the electric slide was I, more like 88 or 89. I The sprinkler... So now, but I might be thrown off because I think of the sprinkler as the thing where you do this, um, and I associate that with the 1970s. And so I think it's the Macarena, although I would have put the Macarena a little bit earlier in time, like more like 95 or 96. But I'm just going to stick with my instincts here and, and say the Macarena. You are correct. Ding. <laughs> Excellent. I think I think you're right that actually the Macarena was a little earlier. But in this interview I found, um, he says, uh, I started writing my second book, which is also not The Martian. Then I got laid off because AOL merged with Netscape. Ugh, these are such dated references. AOL merged with Netscape. The Macarena was popular. Anyway, when they merged, I had these stock options that were worth a shitload of money. Yeah. Um, and he ends up selling those stock options for like sort of pr the pre.com bust and so he actually did really well off of them mm. um and that's part of what fueled his ability to be a writer even though he did continue working in software engineering for a bunch of years after that he never like this is a really interesting interview because he was basically like i never really risked starving yeah um he's like i wrote in my spare time i wrote in the middle of the night you know all that stuff well that's fascinating and it's telling too about what it takes to be a successful writer because it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's damn hard for people who aren't rich um it's damn hard for people who are rich but it's especially hard for people who have to work for a living i imagine that the money he had took a little bit of pressure off too and he probably you know even if he kept working you know maybe he had a little more time for writing but my question for you is also an Andy Weir origin story question. Okay. Um, so as you acknowledge, um, and like uh, also recently a contemporary of his, John Scalzi, he's had kind of a bootstrappy career and got his start. Um, also, Naomi Novik is another writer like this. Got his start by self-publishing at first and building a following around a self-published novel um, I believe that was The Martian, which he published on his website, sold for cheap. That eventually got a proper book deal. And, and, and But part of that journey is that he also, during this time, wrote a popular bit of fan fiction for a pre-existing property. And later, his fan fiction was published in an official collection by the owners of that property, if that makes sense. And it's, it's yep. multiple choice, but do you understand the premise I do. Yeah, I'm I think I'm going to be looking for that particular property. Right. So okay. was that property the alien saga, you know, based on the Ridley Scott film? Mm -hmm. Was it Ready Player One based on the Ernest Klein novel, Steven Spielberg film? Or was it Tank Girl, uh, which was made into a movie by Rachel Talalay based on a British comic? Yeah. Um Okay, I know that it, Ready Player One seems way too late for this whole thing. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I'm going to toss that one out. Um, I know that Andy Weir has a really, really strong background in comics. Um, and in some of my research for this episode, good God, the number of amnesiac comic main characters, it, it, mm. it puts all other genres, like it dwarfs them. Like, there are 10 times as many amnesiac comic book heroes as there are 
crime novel or regular literary fiction. Mm. It was really remarkable. Mm. I was like, oh my God, this is like a 10 to 1. It's like an order of magnitude. Um, Aliens does have a really strong fan fiction comic book world. But I'm going to go with Tank Girl. It is Ready Player One. <laughs> it's like so that is like 100% Chris's experience with trivia. Yeah. Where I like instantly throw out the correct answer and then like think my way around to the wrong answer. Uh, so excellent work giving me some good red herrings in there. Well, and yeah, I thought that Tank Girl would be a good red herring. The, um, the, Ready Player One was published in 2012. Um, And, you know, The Martian was, what, like 2014, 2015? So there was a little bit of a gap in there where he was publishing on his own website. And the story is about a thousand pages or a thousand words or something like that. Okay. It's called Lacero. Yeah. And I. I'm, you may have to fact check me because I looked this up two weeks ago since we had a, we had an earlier taping, um, but I, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm right. I, mean, I certainly know the story is called Lucero, uh, and that it was published. Now I don't know. Maybe he did a Tank Girl fanfic too, in which case we'd have to give you a retro ding, uh, it, <laughs> or like a combination buzz ding. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, if you're right, you're right. Want to tell our listeners what is coming up next? Coming up next is the second half of Project Hail Mary, where we learn exactly why. Ryland Grace was picked for this particular mission and whether or not he and Rocky can save their respective planets. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Please, as always, uh, rate and review us. Uh, If you give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, we will read your review on the air. You can get in touch with us at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com or bagg at uppermiddlebrow.com. And Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes, creators and hosts. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bagg. Uh, You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And we will see you all next light year. (laughs) See you on the other side of the solar system. See you in Tau Ceti. (laughs) 